Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is... Ancient Office Hours, at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 52 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. Christina Hotallen, a social media manager for Invicta History, the YouTube channel. She holds a BA in Classics and PhD in History from the University of South Florida, concentrating on the late Roman Empire. Her research interests include gender and sexuality, identity, material culture, digital humanities, and classical reception and metal music. In this episode, we discussed how growing up in a Greek-American environment influenced her path into classics and history, the difficulties of doing public outreach while working a full-time job, and the pleasure of watching ancient film adaptations with a buddy. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me this evening, morning, whatever it is, and I just want to get the ball rolling and ask you how you got into classics. I guess my interest has always been there. I feel like the way I grew up, the things I was exposed to, especially being like half Greek and all, um, that really plays a big role into why and how I got into ancient studies and classics and ancient history the way that I did. But even things like Tomb Raider, I remember watching my sister playing Tomb Raider on the PlayStation 1 back in the day. That was something that really interested me was just the antiquities and the aesthetics of it. It just looked really cool. And then you know, I remember watching like Disney's Hercules. That was like another really big thing that triggered my interest. And then it wasn't until I took a classical mythology class in middle school as like a 13 year old kid that really that grew my interest, but I never knew studying this was a thing. I didn't know that until I was ready to declare a major for my undergrad for my bachelor's degree. And at the time when I was starting it, I had always been interested in art. I thought I was going to do art history or fine arts since I was always doing things like that. But after talking to my family about it, they're like, well, you know, you can't really do a whole lot with art necessarily doesn't pay the bills. That's just the way they think about that stuff. And so I thought I was going to do something entirely different like law school because I just thought all right, well, I'm not going to become a medical doctor. So maybe I can try a, <laughs> a legal pursuit. And when I was looking for majors to declare, I saw classics being offered. And I had read and done some research that classics majors are really well-rounded. They get into law school. It really helps for a career like that. 
And plus they covered a lot of things I was interested in, like the art, humanities, covered a little bit of everything. And at that point, I didn't really know what exactly I wanted to do, but I figured, well, why not? So I did that. And that sort of just spiraled into me studying history later. And I really liked antiquity and that was the start of it all, so to speak. So yeah, it was a lot of things that led to me declaring myself as a classics major and then eventually going for a master's and PhD. Hey, I mean, no shame sounds like a lot of people I've talked to actually where some people were like, I'm on it. I got this. I know exactly what I'm doing. Others were the, well, I don't know this exists, but I found it and I'm going to do it. And then some were like, uh, emergency. I need something else. Okay. I guess I'll do this. And then, you know, ended up loving it. So yeah, overall, not too unconventional. I feel like at this point, having talked to so many different people about how they got into classics, there's no right way or wrong way. There's just how did you get in? But you know, welcome, you're here now. So yeah, and whereas some people take like Latin in high school, I never took Latin at all. If anything, I took modern Greek, because that's what my high school offered. Being in the area that I live in, it's predominantly a large Greek population. So that's just what the school had offered. I mean, I feel like my environment, cultural upbringing had a lot to do with that too, but it definitely wasn't until I was ready to declare majors for my bachelor's degree that I found it because it was the most appealing. It covered the most things that I was interested in. And I met some really cool people and have read some really cool stuff. So can't complain. (laughs) Nice, nice. And so once you did choose the field, how did you go about sort of figuring out what you were into and what you might want to specialize in? Because I know that's that's a really broad thing and there's so many different options and ways you can go. So um, for some people, it's super easy because they just know what they like. And some people, they really have to sample everything. Yeah, because my classics program was very much heavy on the languages, I realized that languages wasn't my thing. It wasn't my strongest suit. And so At that point, when I realized how language heavy the program was and what I'd be expected to do much later in grad school, I wanted to take some classes in the humanities. So I took some classes on like women in antiquity, and that class was just amazing. That is what sort of got me interested and ended up where I am or what I ended up doing in my PhD later. But like I took classes on ancient Egypt. I took Roman archaeology classes, some classes in art. They weren't offered by the art history department, but they were taught within the humanities. And so I tried to take as many ancient related classes as I could, including ancient philosophy. Um, I went so far as philosophy at one point, but it wasn't until I started talking to more people outside of classics in the history department that I realized there's a lot more I could do with classics. I wasn't just language and textual based. At that point, I was being introduced to like new things like comparative literature, or at least within history, it was digital humanities as being the big thing. And, Mm. you know, that was very appealing to me at that point. I feel like the majority of classicists end up being Hellenists, not Latinists. Yeah. You know, so when confronted with the Greece and Rome thing, you know, how did you make that decision? 
being Greek, I wanted to study the Greeks because I wanted to learn more about myself and I guess my heritage, so to speak, my history. <laughs> Unfortunately, my classics program, they cut the third and fourth semester of ancient Greek classes when I was getting ready to do it. So I had to make the immediate jump to Latin. And I did Latin one and two over the summer, which was hell on earth because it's such an accelerated pace. It, it was a lot to handle. And I just had to go through with all four semesters of it. <laughs> that was, Ooh. yeah, that was a lot. And unfortunately, because of that cancellation with the Greek class, I could have taken other classes, but at that point I was just focusing on the Latin stuff. If it meant getting my prereq done um, and out of the way. <laughs> so that's how I ended up studying Latin mostly. <laughs> but it's funny because where I ended up getting my degrees from and everything, there were some Greek people, there were some Greek scholars, but they didn't do what I wanted to do, which was I wanted to look at material culture and cultural gender history and all that. And one of the people I could work with was in Roman history. And so that's how I became a Roman historian. But I don't look at it like a compromise necessarily. I mean, things turned out the way that they did. I really like the Romans. I appreciate what the Romans have done as much as I appreciate Greek history. Just worked out that way. <laughs> <laughs> I found that so unique. I was like, okay, here's someone who's like got Greek heritage. So of course she's she's just going to go study the, the ancestors. And then I'm like, no, she's into Rome. Wait, what? Yeah. Like, okay. Okay. I mean, my people were colonized by the people I ended up studying. Go figure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, sure, sure. So I think that's kind of cool, though, because um, I feel like especially the, the Greeks or the people of Greek, uh, you know, heritage that I speak to definitely were like, no, no, no. Of course, I I went Greek obviously right. so so it's kind of fun to find someone who didn't you know go on into that so by the time you got to, to graduate study can you talk just a little bit about you know how you went about went through the process of sort of picking specific subject and you know how did you whittle that down and because you know there's a lot in Roman history and there's a lot that can be done with gender studies so um, yeah how did you pick your specific topic <laughs> it's a journey so when I first started graduate school, I was actually opting to work in late antiquity. I was planning to work under a professor who was a Byzantinist, just because he was one of the people in the department that seemed the most eager and willing to work with me at the time, especially because of the digital humanities approach. It was so new and different for the program. That's the only reason why I able to get into the program as sort of an ancient historian was because I wasn't focusing on just languages like most people would traditionally have to do. And at that point, I had basically decided that I wasn't going to go into academia. I knew I wasn't going to be competitive for the job market. I'm not wrong <laughs> in a way. And that's okay with me. I didn't want to go into academia at that point, um, knowing the challenges that I was going to be faced with. Not that Altac has been a walk in the park by any means, but it's certainly been a lot easier to navigate the industry market than academic market, but it's a conversation mm -hmm. for another day. <laughs> but yeah, so I started out as sort of a late antique person. 
And then things didn't work out with that professor where they got they, they got busy with other obligations and things. And so I ended up finding a new advisor <laughs> to my third year of my PhD. And it worked out fine because this professor was very eager to work with me. Her research interests very much aligned with mine more than my original advisor. She was the one who actually suggested that I work within the third century because that's an area that hasn't really been touched upon. I mean, it has been in the political and military scholarship, most importantly. But as far as what I was doing with the material culture and gender, especially imperial women, that really hasn't been explored a whole lot. So that was really how I got into it, was on the suggestion of my advisor who understood what I wanted to do and how I can make an original contribution to the field while including my own interests and research into that. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, sometimes all it takes is like that one amazing mentor advisor I had several good ones, although, of course, they, you know, weren't into sort of the same thing I was, but it was fine because they were great mentors anyway. And I knew I wasn't even going to go into grad school for classics that just I knew it wasn't for me. So I congratulate you for going through and then, you know, working hard to find something that worked and then getting through it. And then since you did know at that point that you wanted to go into Alt-Ac and weren't going to go in like straight into proper academia how did you find sort of coming out of the phd and then uh, sort of attacking the alt act job market because i think you know a lot of people just kind of think well if i'm gonna get the degree you, you, you might as well try to do something sort of related historical something blah, blah 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 there are a ton of options out there but i don't think people think through all of them yeah for me i was having to figure it out on my own I mean, I had help from other people who've been working, working a corporate job, whatever, as far as what things to do, what not to do. But as far as looking for careers and jobs go, I read a lot of blogs and articles on, you know, life after PhDs, you know, alt act careers for the humanities graduates. I read and kept up with all those articles and it's also important to bear in mind that I was finishing my PhD like in the early months of the pandemic when things had just shut down, you know, so that March, you know, I was still writing my dissertation, trying to finish it. And there was a lot going on too, like in America at that point, there was a lot of distractions. There was a lot. So the job market was really hard for a while. And it didn't occur to me until later that after talking with some other people that there were career options in cultural resource management, but to get into a job like that is incredibly hard. At least in my experience, it was really hard to find full-time work versus part-time contractual work. And it wasn't until I was looking on the federal government's uh, jobs website that I found my first foray into that, which was historic preservation with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. So they handle the natural disasters that happens within the United States and its territories. And I was able to get hired as a historic preservationist, which was really good at the time. But because that was part-time reservist work, I never really got called out for that specific position. I was called out for the federal vaccination stuff because that's when mm. the government needed people. 
but as far as my actual job title goes, I never really got to do it. So it wasn't until a few months later when I got home from my first deployment with FEMA that I ended up getting, I was actually approached for my current job um, as a social media manager for a YouTube channel. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And that has been far more <laughs> rewarding and fulfilling. <laughs> Plus it gives me the opportunity to use my degree. I get to work with this stuff. Um, you know, it's really the best of both worlds in that respect. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I will say I kind of have like an extra level of respect for people who were literally finishing degrees during the pandemic, like right when that happened, because I'm sure everyone had a great idea of kind of hopefully how immediately, you know, after finishing would sort of have gone and then to be slammed with, okay, well, now we're quarantined. Now we're at home. Now everything's remote. Now you can't do this. So you know, and I was always one of those people. I always said that I was never going to be that person defending my dissertation, not knowing if I had a job or not after I finished. You know, I was like, I was always that person who said, that's not going to be me. I'm going to hustle and hustle. And I did. I really worked. I, I looked, I applied for everything I thought I was, you know, perfectly, you know, suitable to do. And none of it just fizzled. I mean, you know, none of it came to fruition. It was frustrating for sure. We're dealing with like people getting laid off left and right. And yeah, you know, it, it was, it was rough. It still is. Yeah. It's not any better, but. No, certainly not, which is super sad, but yeah, no, I mean, you definitely got thrown quite the curveball. <laughs> Everyone at that time got thrown such a curveball so I'm like literally seriously kudos to people for for seeing it through because you know I'm sure that somewhere along there there might have been the temptation to be like oh god okay the world's changed so like am I in a position where I have to do this or I know two people who were doing their PhDs and then actually left ABD because they were like it's too much I can't now I have responsibilities and I can't do it so I know they're hoping to go back and finish eventually but yeah so you know kudos to to, to you to making it out and then additionally having to hustle and, and find something right you know since you got sort of you had the interest and you know there was something going on with digital humanities and I tend to notice that people who like digital humanities also like the you know public outreach stuff and so even if that's not your full-time job, you know, do you still, how do you still manage to find time to sort of um, work on individual projects within that? And, you know, is it, could it turn into something eventually maybe that you might be able to do full-time as some kind of independent scholar eventually? Like if you are passionate enough about it or is it something that's kind of like, nah, it probably has to remain like a, like a side project thing? I think for right now, it's only a side project thing that I can sort of do. I try to make time for it on the weekends with my work schedule, just because I have my own research responsibilities and obligations for the YouTube channel. But as far as my public outreach goes, it's one of those things that if I can get to it, I can get to it. It's just, I don't have a set schedule for it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something that I can really committed to and I don't know that may be the ADHD too <laughs> but <laughs> I do my best with it yeah 
Okay, no, hey, that's a perfectly suitable answer because, you know, I'm definitely one of those people who I'm still kind of sitting here like I haven't graduated yet. I'm still going to be trying to enter the workforce, hopefully in Europe. But, you know, definitely try to keep my eyes and ears open because if I can sort of carve out a space in public outreach, you know, just like digital humanities, I would love to do that full time. I just, I don't know how optimistic I am about seriously being able to pursue it also because I found that there's quite, I haven't like settled on the term for like what to call this just to be sort of polite, but there's like a credibility gap when you are someone who doesn't have at least like a PhD, even if you don't work in academia proper, like I feel like there is some sort of inherent disadvantage where somehow you're thought of as less credible if you don't have the piece of paper. And same with, you know, if you don't have experience, you know, being a proper TA or teacher, if you have no teaching experience. Like I find that people sort of take everything you say with a grain of salt and then they kind of, they're like, okay, that's cool. And then sort of run to like the quote unquote real experts, which is right. uh, like, you know, that, that doesn't really inspire confidence. I can relate. Being like a junior scholar, I feel like people don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe they don't refer to me as an expert or like, think of me like one for whatever reason, because I'm so fresh, so to speak, especially if you don't have like the sort of connections with publishing, or if you're really not a big publisher or writer it's hard to establish yourself. And for me, it's like, oh gosh, like sometimes writing is just daunting for me. But that's only because I don't have the time to dedicate to just writing all the time like I used to. Even then, it's just, it's hard. It's competitive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, I don't know. Like, how do we make that better i mean because obviously we're always going to have you know new baby academics coming up through the ranks but like you know i i don't know have you encountered like a lot of you know oh because you're so new we can't you're not seen as like a credible expert yet or do you still feel like you know compared to you know someone who only has an ma or something like do they still sort of trust your knowledge a little more are you afforded that basically I haven't really had many opportunities to like deal with that, I guess. Like I haven't really been asked a whole lot to partake in anything or to lend my credibility, my expertise for something I should say. But what I do too is also very niche, I guess. I mean, as far as like what my research goes. So maybe that's a reason why. Otherwise, I have no problem just doing what I'm doing now for for social media as far as what I do for myself and what I do for work and as long as I can you know continue producing the sort of work that I am very passionate about doing then that's what matters to me I mean I don't know if that answered the question I sort of derailed for a second no you're fine you're fine it it makes sense but I don't know some some people say they feel it some people are like no I really haven't felt it so I mean it's probably good right that you haven't had to confront not being seen as like expert on something yet right honestly I think it's my imposter syndrome still that I'm still feeling it's a really hard Mm. thing to shake off after being the academic trenches for so long (laughs) yeah yeah and apparently that's something even other like friends of mine and other colleagues deal with still you know to some degree until they get to the position where they want to be at I guess we'll see okay well in the meantime while we're waiting for someone to come to you and ask you to lend your credibility to some hopefully wonderful new project maybe 
you know, consulting for some TV series or game or something really cool. The dream. <laughs> well, I was going to say, okay, if someone were to come to you and say, hey, so like you've done gender studies, you've done women, you've done a period of time that, you know, has been done militarily, but not really in other contexts a lot. You know, what kind of cool movie media project thing would you like to hopefully see come to fruition? I'd like to see something on the Severance docu-series or like a drama on the Severance. There's so much to unpack with like even just the women of the Severan dynasty as far as like how influential they were in creating emperors and whatnot and setting uh, policies. That would be fantastic. I also think um, the third century needs some representation as well. As far as like a really good like docu-series go I mean you could do like a whole series on the third century if you want to do it from like the military and political stuff there's a lot to go over plus it's spicy with the turnover of emperors we all like that but even like just something on the women behind the men that would be Mm -hmm. really great as well and yeah that's all I can really think of I mean if I want to go earlier I mean we could say you know (laughs) do a series on Sola that would be really fun or even yeah i'm trying to think like okay well what things we have that were done about like ancient rome that were good and not just you know complete crap i mean okay so do you have favorite roman series i liked hbo's rome while it was really good i mean i understand like you know what happened with the show as far as the budget cuts and all that but i thought that was really fun spartacus was fun too i mean There were things that I thought were kind of ridiculous as far as like the special effects go and all that. The dramatic overacting was quite comical from time to time. I can't lie, but um, I do appreciate that they were showing more of like the lesser people. Like, you know, they're giving perspective to people that we never hear perspectives from, like the slaves. And, you know, they were showing a relationship between two men in a very positive way or you know as positive as it gets for one of those shows especially and that's all I can really think of right now (laughs) (laughs) I'm supposed to be watching I Claudius I keep saying I'm going to but it's just (laughs) one of those things I keep forgetting about it's fine. Hey, I I remember catching you watching Rome. I remember the the long threads. Those were so entertaining to read. I remember I was, you know, I'm not super active on Twitter. I just kind of lurk and I like seeing people's stuff. But uh, I remember I was like, no, I wish I could set like a, like a reminder for the, you know, when, when these threads are expanded, you know, these are fantastic. It was like, that is the way to watch a series. It's one of those things I would love to do with other like scholars and other just people that are just as into this stuff as me I love I love the idea of viewing parties I wish I could make that into a thing I like talking to other people about it on Twitter that's one of my favorite things about Twitter is having been able to establish this community of scholars and just fans and enthusiasts and we just get to talk about this sort of stuff this nonsense with other people (laughs) Yeah, because that's where you're going to find people who are just as nerdy as you are. But like, you know, I've heard of Twitter for a lot of like we we talk shit about Twitter being like this hell. Terrible. Yeah, Yeah. terrible and just the worst place. But, you know, 
when I started getting active on Twitter in 2019, it was when I had just moved back home from Tampa um, because I was finishing my dissertation. And this was just before the pandemic started. And so I was home all the time. I was teaching online before the pandemic. I was writing my dissertation. And it's because of Twitter that I found this community of classicists and other ancient historians that I've been able to talk to and hang out with. And truthfully, Twitter is how I got my current job, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it's where I get to talk about my scholarship. It's where, um, you know, I get to engage with people about this stuff. It's how I found opportunity. It's been really great in that respect. Who would have thought? I know, I know. No, I, as much as I complain about how much I hate Twitter, I cannot shy away from the fact that I've made such good friends in classics that I never would have met or heard of or made contact with otherwise. So, yeah, I, you know, I've like been on Twitter with my personal account for years and I kind of just lurked and I was like, you know, I was at the point where I was like, I'm just going to shut this thing down because I don't really use it for much other than like looking at what other people say and finding something funny occasionally in cats but you know when I started Osmandy's project I was like eh, I feel like I should be on there just in case and then I discovered like the whole community of classics twitter and then I was like I guess I'm not leaving yep for every for every dumpster fire I make like two more friends so I was like okay yep all right then so it finds a way to hook you back in so yeah uh, I am grateful to it even if it can be shitty I am grateful to it for for opportunities and and meeting folks and stuff so yeah I mean it's been a it's a really great community of people that where I feel like that was the one place I feel like I could like be very expressive about myself and talk about my research interests without like getting too much pushback or like why are you studying that? Or that's women's work I got told that once by um someone in my program yeah rude yeah i know i mean that's the problem of being in a predominantly modernist history program with a bunch of dudes (laughs) yeah so when i got on classics twitter it was a total fresh of the fresh air (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was just a very warm reception for the most part and people seemed genuinely interested in what i was doing because i mean especially with the third century it's like third century who Mm-hmm. I was like that to a certain extent before I decided I think I'll make this my dissertation. I feel like there's such a bias though for like fifth century anything or late Bronze Age or or some sort of you know yeah Minoans or whatever. So to be honest, when we would even if we were lucky enough through my semesters, if we could cover some things in the fourth century, people were like, oh, that's that's different. That's like unexplored territory because we never get to that. We never have time because we're so stuck in the fifth century. So honestly, the third century to me is even more foreign than the fourth century. And the fourth century is like still pretty foreign, you know, beyond just, you know, Alexander and stuff. I'm just like, what is happening in the world in this time period? Like, I know things exist. I know things are happening. I just don't remember. And then, of course, I like get reminded of like some emperor or some world event. And I'm like, oh, I know that. Wait, was that in the third century? And then I'm I'm sitting here feeling like super dumb because then I'm like, that was in the third century. What? Yeah. I don't know. Is it kind of fun? Though, to be able to be like, oh, yeah, I did my research in the third century. And then have most people be like, I don't know anything about the third century. What? Great. I mean, especially because 
I didn't even have to travel like a whole lot to do this research because it was all readily available online. What little evidence there is to be had, I was able to get my hands on it digitally. It was fantastic. So (laughs) there wasn't a whole lot to work with, but what I was able to work with was very manageable, especially Mm. because like I'm writing a dissertation that I was able to sort of use for interviews if it really came down to it and actually show people like because I I did a digital component to the written stuff so my actual written dissertation is fairly it's fairly modest compared to what normal history dissertations are which were like maybe well over 200 to 300 pages minimum mine was about 180 pages but I also had the digital component which was the database and the website and so my topic and what I chose to written on were really quite handy um, as far as like what my uh, post-PhD goals and aspirations were. So I was able to write a manageable dissertation, do what I needed to do. And it was, it was, it was doable for the most part. I mean, I'm not going to say a dissertation was easy because it wasn't, but compared to like what I've seen of other dissertations, I felt it was very doable. (laughs) So And that's the sort of the benefit of working within the third century, depending on what it is that you're working on. Like there's so, (laughs) there's only so much remaining evidence, you know, for the specific period, you kind of just have to grab what you can and. Hey, it makes sense. And hey, there is a benefit to choosing a topic that is not overdone because then you can just use that as your playground and be like, well, if y'all are not doing this, um, I guess I will. And I have all the resources at my disposal. Like have fun going and traveling and trying to get your hands on all these obscure things. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes it easy to like carve out a name for yourself too within the field. If there hasn't been a whole lot done on it, then it gives you a little bit of wiggle room to put your stake in there. Yeah, hey, maybe getting there, it was kind of like dumpster fire. But you know what? At the end of the day, the way it like appears when you're like on the other side of it is like, oh, yeah, this is part of my uh, master plan to, you know, have this lane. And, you know, look at me. I'm, I'm ahead of the curve now. So it's, uh, it's pretty freaking awesome. So I think I saw that you're working on the lego coliseum is that still a thing that you're doing i finished it you finished it i just finished it the other day oh my goodness yeah so how was it that crazy ass idea of tweeting out if i reach certain amount of followers i'm gonna build this coliseum on live stream (laughs) i didn't realize it was gonna take off to be honest i just thought like (laughs) 60 hits on it didn't expect it to go as viral as it did, but it sort of did. And I was able to convince my work to let me do that for the social medias that yours truly um, manages. <laughs> and I have video footage recorded of it. And I plan to release that on the social media pages every so often. It's basically just a fun way of talking about the Colosseum, the historical aspects of it, like the facts. In addition to building a Lego Colosseum by a Roman historian with no Lego building experience, that was sort of the fun of it. And people were drawn to that. And I think, I believe TikTok will find that very fascinating and entertaining as well. Because I was thinking about it and I was like, well, it's kind of brilliant because not only is it, does it have 
immense entertainment value, apparently, uh, which is awesome. But I was like, I think you also opened up another new method of maybe using that to teach people about it. So it's like if you're teaching a class on the Coliseum, as you build the sections where things are going, you could teach a thing and be like, let's build the thing that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that popped in my mind, and I was like, this is so cool. You could do, like, your own little, like, Coliseum tutorial via building it. Yeah. I mean, I'm planning to do that with the Pyramid of Giza set that is set to release soon. I would. I want, I want it. I want an Egyptologist to be on the stream with me and talk me through it so it could be more of a collaborative thing. But it would also just be a fun way of bringing more people onto the stream and... My problem with the Lego Coliseum was there were so many interruptions and distractions between having to move it from one place to another place. And then with my traveling over the past month and a half to Boston and then to England, I couldn't ever establish a consistent schedule for the streaming. So if I'm able to do that next time with the Pyramid of Giza and hopefully as a collaboration with someone, I'm hoping it'll be even more successful and I can get more people to actively watch it. Because for the first few times that I was doing the stream, I was definitely going over the historical stuff of it. And then there came a point where I just I just wanted to finish it. So I would just build it <laughs> and then just take questions from people who were just watching it and just answer <laughs> questions that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it didn't always have to be about the Coliseum specifically. It could be about Roman history. I was just talking about the movie Gladiator the other night with someone. Yes. Netflix Roman Empire series. Uh, okay. You know, I was just taking questions that way, but I'm planning to do it again with the Pyramid of Giza set. Okay. So I would love to have other people on there to talk about pyramid stuff with me. Yes. Well, I... I mean, based on when this episode will go out, I feel like you might have already done, you possibly may have already done that stream. So if if, if you have, I will link it in the show notes. Um, and if some of the uh, Coliseum building stuff is up, uh, I will link those in the show notes so people can find these streams that we're talking about as well. <laughs> I'll try to, I'll try to find that Rome thread and link that as well. Cause that, for anyone listening, you got to catch this Rome thread. It's fantastic. So I will try to link that to <laughs> the show notes. Uh, the Rome thread should be the pinned tweet on my Twitter page. Yes. Because I okay, have all so... like Rome and ancient movie watch alongs um, in that thread. Okay, I... great. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Okay. I am so excited. So excited. Okay. Okay. I, I, I know what I'm doing with my life. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just think that if I have an expert in Rome, I, I need to just sit you down and just put on any sort of Roman thing and be like, okay, tell me about it, please. Yeah. Just tell me what's good. Is this, is this accurate? Is this not accurate? What's, what's going on? Is this right? Is this wrong? Like, <laughs> would they have said that? I, I feel like I have so many questions, you know, being a Hellenist I don't know much yeah I mean that's something that I would love to do with any of these things that I watch is just watch it with someone else because sometimes people pick out things that I don't always catch on first glance um because mm -hmm. I'm fixated on something entirely <laughs> or I'm too busy cracking jokes about one thing still and just not <laughs> the bigger picture yeah uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I love to branch into like the Greek and Hellenistic movies as well but it's like <laughs> oh god i would need someone else for that <laughs> so i don't so i know what i'm talking about 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, okay, I'm trying to have a little fun with it. So since you are of Greek heritage, even though you're doing Rome, do you have a favorite Greek-based set, whatever, movie? You know, do you, do you find one particularly represents you know your 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 culture well or or not really are they all just like nah Uh, (laughs) yeah they're kind of mostly the same for the most part i mean i think the movie troy is fun that's still a really fun movie i like to watch uh but i'm trying to think of any other ones i mean the alexander movie was just no no. no no although i did learn the fun trivia which was why do they all have irish accents uh because i've always wondered like why if they're greek and then well if yeah. alexander himself has the very strong irish brogue i was just like why is his mother then the one with like the weird sort of generic middle eastern accent and um the trivia i learned was that colin farrell tried desperately to drop the accent but was absolutely incapable of doing it and so because he couldn't drop the accent they didn't want him to sound different from everyone else so they were kind of like well all right we'll make everyone speak with a very irish accent and um just say those are the greeks and then we'll make other accents different to differentiate them from the greek accent that they're not doing Uh... (laughs) that's why i was like casting choice can you just change your like main character to someone who you know maybe is greek but no no that's apparently not i was thinking about that earlier today with the movie spencer the Mm. one about princess diana so they have Kristen stewart playing princess diana but Kristen stewart's american talking with a british Mm -hmm. accent why not just cast a british woman for that role I know that's why I'm very confused like everything is it comes down to but if you want someone to do this accent then you could cast someone who that's just their voice right like there are many you know Greek speaking actors I mean for fuck's sake get Rita Wilson that's as close as they're gonna get her I don't know it's not my big fat Greek wedding is probably the closest representation of Greek life <laughs> yeah oh man yeah or just i don't know there's so many like actually good greek actors just get one of them like right i mean it's set in greece just find a greek person <laughs> put them in the movie right how hard can it be yeah so no i when i learned that trivia about alexander i was like i mean it makes so much sense but i'm also God. like that's just so infuriating because i'm like well if he couldn't drop a very noticeable irish accent then get someone who doesn't have one should i watch it again now i don't think i will i don't want to put myself through that torture <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could just for the sheer entertainment value because it's just fucking hilarious. But yeah, you, you know, I would I'll totally like understand if you lull. don't want to do that. I, <laughs> for the lull factor. Yeah, I'll do it for the Twitter. <laughs> Twitter thread on Alexander movie. And why it's a flaming pile of donkey poo. <laughs> it sounds like something a Greek would say, right? It does sound like something a Greek person would say. Oh, you're definitely taking advantage of that those greek roots of yours perfect love it you know and then while you're watching it you know just maybe swear in like greek and then you know just malaka exactly just just call everyone a fucking malaka just be like you're no you said the you said that wrong malaka you know no he that wasn't historically accurate malaka just 
that, you know they did so much of that in the in the assassin's creed odyssey malaka malakas <laughs> those are my favorite i think i saw in an interview they were asked to record it like over a hundred different times in a hundred different tones of voice because they wanted a different emotion behind the intention and the word i can't argue with that <laughs> Because someone someone was like, okay, I want to challenge Michael Antonakos, who did Alexios. And they were like, how do you, how would you do a questioning, unsure Malacca? And it was the funniest thing ever because he just kind of got himself all set. And then he like made his eyes like really wide. And he was like, Malacca? You know, and it was like <laughs> perfect. And I was like, oh my God, this is so priceless. So I was like, I need this recorded in like a hundred ways. And I need to see all hundred ways. Yeah. I'm surprised they don't have like a super clip of that. I know. I'm like, can you just make a blooper reel already? I mean, they have them somewhere. Presumably. Certainly they do in the basements of Ubisoft. Where are they at? Come on, release this shit. I want to see it. I need this. I need <laughs> this to be released for my birthday. Birthday present to me from That's Ubisoft. Good. That would be a great birthday present, wouldn't it? It would. They have until September then to find me this reel and present it, it to me. <laughs> if there was step on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Is it, would it be possible actually to do like a whole tweet thread of someone playing the game? Oh boy. Maybe. And if so, I feel like you'd be the person to do it. I feel like you would have to do it. Oh, that would be so much work. <laughs> It would be so much work, but it would be so much fun. <laughs> but see, you don't have to play it. You watch someone else play it, and then you just tweet as it's going. I could probably do that. I don't see why that couldn't be done. I mean, mm -hmm. it would definitely have to be a two-person like team effort, for sure. Yeah, like it would be fun to play with even like someone who didn't know any ancient history or Greek history just to see their like instant reaction to this stuff. Like, especially with, like, the introduction of Alcibiades, like, just, ooh, I'm Alcibiades, hey. Because <laughs> I remember when I was playing it, and then we were introduced to Socrates, and then his dialogue was so good. I was like, I wanted to turn to someone and be like, is this something he really would have said? It feels like, it. oh, my God, it's brilliant. And, of course, I was playing it alone in a dark room, and I was like, I can't ask anyone. <laughs> and I was so sad. I understand. The first time I played Assassin's Creed Origins, I was living with my roommate at the time, my former roommate. They really like um, ancient Egypt a lot, and they've studied it pretty extensively. And so as I'm playing the game, they're just offering commentary like, that shouldn't be there. That ain't right. Why are they doing this? <laughs> just things like that. It was just really great. And that's what I like about doing, that's why I like the idea of like doing these things with other people's because they just offer fresh commentary and things that, on um, things that I don't know. I mean, I I don't know everything about this stuff and that's why I rely on other people to do it for me. And then I just offer my own commentary and, you know, make it a conversation and make it into something funny because yeah, it's just funnier that way. Things are more fun. Hey. I couldn't agree more. So I'm I'm so here for it. I think, uh, you know, you should maybe, yeah, we could we tweet some games. If it gets more people movies. interested in this stuff and if it educates people, I see no harm in doing any of this. Exactly. Okay. Well, now I know who to turn to when I'm like, I, I, need, a, I need a Twitter thread for this. I need someone entertaining. I know exactly who I'm going to be asking. <laughs>
I know all that time spent on Twitter really pays off uh, when it comes to tweeting off fiery, funny <laughs> reactions to things. And no matter how crude they are. <laughs> I, I think it's the GIF and the meme use that's just like perfect placement. Yeah, who says that's what can't be useful, right? Mm-hmm. There's like a meme class somewhere you can take on how to use them properly <laughs> and where to use them properly. So yeah, I'll have to find where that was because I know there's some college or university that literally wait you, really you can take a class. Yeah, that's, I think it's what is it, the New Jersey something art. I don't know. Either way, um, I was talking to someone who said they were teaching a meme class. So I'm like, I need to know who this is and where this is because reasons. That sounds like fun. I know. I was like, meme class. That's all you have to say. Meme class. And it's like, boom. Imagine being meme class, though. Like, imagine being that person who fails it. Like, how? I would hope that no one fails a meme class. Because if you fail it, I'm just going to be like, you can never use memes again. Yeah, you're, like, you're banned. You're banned from the internet, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that would be so hard. No, actually, you're just banned to Facebook. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you can only use Facebook from now on. It's like, oh, that's oh, hell. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I don't know if I'd like that. Uh, I'd be ha- having to retake that class like immediately. Yeah. Anyway, so the last couple questions that I asked to sort of end the interview portion, though, are uh, one, when you were either undergrad or grad student, did you attend office hours? Um, Sometimes. Sometimes I did. I didn't really start attending office hours more often until it came time to start planning out my dissertation and talking about some research. I always enjoyed the office hours for my seminars where I just got to have that one-on-one time with the professor and talk about research and things to look into. It was always sort of like a creative brainstorming session for me. And I just like having that one-on-one time where I get to say what I want to say and, you know, just have the undivided attention of someone who knows this stuff better. Nice. Nice. Uh, second question is, do you have like a favorite piece of advice or memory from a office hours experience? I don't know about a favorite memory per se, but as far as advice goes, that's your time to be honest and open about what your um, interests are what your goals are as far as like what it is that you're there to do whether you're there for a class or dissertation or thesis yeah it's just one of those things where I guess just be honest about what your intentions are what you plan to do and the sort of things you're interested in because I have found that like at least for me when I was ready to write a paper I I was very set on what I wanted to do. And I was always adamant about sticking with that topic or theme of it. You know, there would have to be room for negotiation here and there, but that was my opportunity to lay my case and, you know, just try to come in prepared with um, some things to go over. That way the professor advisor doesn't, you know, try to take over whatever you're trying to do and set you on another path that maybe you're not interested in or you know feel is best for you well that kind of answered my last question which is you know why should someone go to office hours so I guess 
this would be the time if you would like to add anything, but otherwise I feel like you've really covered it. It's good to um, establish a relationship with your advisor or your professor, especially if you're working with an advisor. Those relationships between student and mentor, it's like a marriage almost. Like you guys have to like each other and vibe with what each of you are doing and offering. And it's good to find someone that respects and understands what your options and goals are and can help you fulfill that um, and get you there at the very least. And for me, at least, it was important for me to work with someone who understood what my interests were and what my goals were after school, which were to not work in academia proper, but to find something doing whatever it took. And that's why I took so many classes and I tried doing as much as I could, like sort of to become a generalist. And I took a lot of these um, techie sort of digital classes to make myself more appealing and to do as much as I could um, and not limit myself or anything. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. Nice. Great advice. I don't disagree with any of that. Yeah. Definitely. I'm a big proponent of going to office hours. Yeah. One thing I did want to add, I mean, for my job right now with Invicta, as a social media manager, I also get the opportunity to write video scripts. So I'm actually in the middle of writing a video right now on Roman inflation. And I have another one that's supposed to be coming out soon on Roman empresses. Those are like my first sort of publications that I've done on my own. But as far as seeking like the academic sort of credence, I guess. What I was referring to is more of like the actual like academic publishing and like the formal process of, you know, going through all that. I have my own success online and social media and YouTube eventually, but as far as like making it into the academic world goes, like that's an area that I'm still kind of working on and put finding my footing in. Nice. Nice. So at the end of uh, each podcast, though, I ask every guest if they will read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then after you've read it, if you would just, you know, tell us, you know, a bit how your, your thoughts on this poem, you know, how does it make you feel? Do you think it's, you know, a poem that really is worth all the hype? Is it, I don't know, just a random poem? You know, it's... I will do my best. I've I've been listening to a lot of your episodes in preparation for this and... I do not offer anything as beautiful or as insightful as your other guests have offered before, but I certainly have my own, you know, thoughts. But yeah, let me uh, read that. Okay. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lays, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing besides remain, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. For me... My first thought is this sort of reads as like a metaphor for empires, the fall of empires specifically. Maybe this is my American mindset and the way I've been feeling for the past few years with COVID and all, but 
Yeah, I certainly get a sense that like all great things must come to an end. Powerful figures rise and fall, empires come and go. And it also makes me think of climate change for some reason. There's just a sense of like the end is near, I guess. Yeah, that's that's sort of what I'm thinking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's spot on, you know. It's it's like a memento mori, honestly. I, I think it is. And I think it's one of the best memento moris we have. You know, it's not a building. It's not a speech it's not you know it's it's a poem man it is a poem that is literally like hey y'all y'all are gonna die you can't do this alone but like go ahead if you if you try and uh so i yeah i think it's a beautiful political statement by shelly and yeah that impermanence of political power again very probably american mindset but still i think it rings true yeah and so you know, kind of considering the poem that way, you know, the, the last question I do ask every guest is if you consider today's society, very, very complicated society, you know, do we have a modern Ozymandias? Do we have something that we think was so great and amazing, but then like realistically, if we look forward, I used to say a thousand years, but then because, you know, climate change might kill us all in like 200. So I will not be bold enough and say a thousand. So like in 200 years, you know, will that thing still be around and will it still be such a good idea or will it have dissolved into you know dust and will we look at it and be like what were we thinking I don't know if there's like a specific person necessarily but I think the idea of like I mean I would like to say capitalism would be one of those things but I fear that with the system or with the status quo now that it's going to be very hard to shake off despite the warnings that we have about it. I don't I don't know if there's like a specific person necessarily. Maybe like the states and like these powerful empires maybe in that respect things will shift, but I don't know right now. I feel like there are things beyond our control that yeah, it's okay to not have an answer. I mean, I've gotten some really impressionistic answers. I've gotten, when I started this question, I thought I was going to get a lot of people. And surprisingly, the majority of answers have not been people at all, but like vague concepts. I've had a few people say capitalism. I had someone say the Pax Americana. And I thought that was like the most amazing huh. answer. And I was like, yes, yeah, yes. Like it's going to fucking crumble. It's already crumbling. But I'm like, yes, that is perfect. Because yeah. we thought that it was going to last forever, right? And then. you're You're right, actually. And I was, I was sort of thinking like American foreign policy, actually, and like our idea of like American democracy, like that I can definitely see changing with some time. If The good thing is, is I feel like we're having those conversations, whether or not they're being amplified, there are conversations being had about that, that I've noticed um, since joining Twitter for the past few years, that people are talking about things like that. And like, I mean, even national identity for that matter. And like borders and boundaries are radically shifting what are borders (laughs) yeah for sure um so those are the sort of things that I see changing rather than people per se I mean certainly when I think of like an Ozymandias I think of like a really big like egomaniacal figure perhaps but even then like those people don't last very long at least like they don't stay in well hopefully they don't stay in power too long yeah, yeah. No, it's a hard one. So it's it's intentionally sort of hard. Yeah, I feel like the answer always changes. So there's 
no right or wrong. There's just a good answer and a good moment. Mm-hmm. And then it'll it'll change. So I'm actually kind of kind of excited. Like hopefully these podcasts will be around for a very long time. And then if someone listening in like 200 years, if we're still around, uh, hears this, they can hear all the answers that we were saying. And then you know check them off like a bucket list. Oh, that came true. No, that was wrong. It'd be very interesting, wouldn't it? It was interesting because like, like as I was writing my dissertation and like I felt like the world was falling apart and things were happening because of COVID and all. Yeah, it very much gave me third century aid (laughs) um so to speak and that poem sort of reminds me of that too where like the buildings of the past were just in a state of ruin and decay and everything and the people who built that stuff were long dead and nowhere commemorated on any of that stuff but the names of the ruling um, powers above them you know still remain what little there is yeah you know so yeah yeah The third century makes me think a lot about the end of the world and the apocalypse. That's useful for now. Yeah. It really is. Right. <laughs> Sa- sadly, s- sadly, but yes, it's it's quite useful. Yeah. I've been writing an episode on Roman inflation lately, so that's just adding into what I'm saying. <laughs> great. Yeah. So doomsday on top of doomsday on top of real life. What a great. Yeah, I'm like, this is great exactly thing. what I want to deal with. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very last thing is where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Wolatons Bologna. Um, that's a lot. It, it's just flying whale in Latin. <laughs> I'll just say it like that. Um, you can find me on Twitter under that handle um, as Dr. Christina H. Um, and that is where I am most active. Otherwise, you can find me on a whole bunch of links I have listed on there. Perfect. Well, I will put those in the show notes so people can go find you in your amazing Twitter threads. So I wanted to thank you one more time for joining me this evening, day, night, whatever time. I don't even know what time is anymore. It's been super fun. And I I hope to have you back at some point. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me here. I'm honored. This is my first podcast um, invite. I know it's mega hype, big hype. And hopefully we can actually do something with Legos and pyramid stuff or just anything because this has been a ton of fun. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, Let's do it again in the future. Absolutely. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.